From Creative Force, I'm Daniel Jester, and this is the e-commerce content creation podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by James Lewis, my friend and colleague at Creative Force, and we take a look back at a few moments from the past year on the podcast. James has been with Creative Force since virtually the beginning, and when I first met him, me as a potential Creative Force customer, and him manning the Creative Force booth at an industry conference, it was clear to me that James brought the full weight of his studio experience to his work on the platform. I've been looking forward to having him as a guest on the show as very often our work meetings result in the two of us chatting about our past lives in various studios and debating about what KPIs are most important. We take a listen to a few clips covering topics like KPIs, planning and continuous improvement, and then I ask James to weigh in with some of his thoughts. One of the things that is absolutely clear is that if you're going to try and drive improvement, you actually need to know where you are right now. You have to have a consistent and repeatable process to be able to kind of do any kind of improvement activity. And so if you get, and it isn't always easy, but if you can get people to kind of adopt a process, not the best process, but I used to talk about it as being our process. It's what we do right now. You can get some repeatability in what you're doing. And then that creates a framework for someone to then identify the team to say, actually, this is getting in the way. And I think doing this in a different way is going to drive improvement. I had a hard time picking which clip to use for this intro. So I think we should just jump in and listen to it all. This is the e-commerce content creation podcast. I am your host, Daniel Jester. Joining me for this episode, my friend and colleague, I can call you a friend, I guess. <laughs> my friend and colleague <laughs> from Creative Force, James Lewis. James is a senior product specialist with Creative Force. He's been with the team basically since the very beginning. James, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Daniel. Really excited to be here. And I'm prepared to concede, friend. I think we spend enough time together. Two thirds to of a bottle of scotch in Spain, and that's probably enough to qualify for friendship. Yeah, well, it was either going to be friendship or it was going to be the other thing, and uh, I'm glad we came down on that side of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Excellent. So, for this episode, James, you and I, we've had tons of amazing podcast worthy conversations just off the cuff over the last year or so of us kind of knowing each other. And me learning as much as I can from you about Creative Force and your experiences and creative production in general. What we're doing for this episode, James, is a little bit of a sort of not quite a year end recap, but call this our end of the year sort of clip show. I've selected four segments from past podcast episodes, and we're going to take a listen to them and then just kind of chat about them and then just get some other perspectives and some things like that. How does that sound, James? Sounds like a lot of fun, Daniel. I'm looking forward to it. This first clip that we have is going to be Tony Baker from the episode with Tony Baker of Stitch Fix. And we're going to go ahead and take a listen to the clip, and then we're going to talk about it on the other end. There's a lot of different philosophies about how to use KPIs in a creative environment. And in previous conversations, and maybe even in this one, we've talked about weaponizing the data that you're able to collect off KPIs. And, you know, I don't know that my approach is the best, but it's worked for me and the teams that I've been involved with before in that, you know, it goes back to, again, hiring well, building the team that you believe is best for the goals that any studio has. Because my philosophy is, let's take a photographer or a stylist, for instance, bringing them into these larger, very high-paced, very high-volume commercial studios you bring these folks in on their first day and you say, okay, 
here's why we've hired you. Here's where we see the real benefit of having you on board. But what we're going to do is we're going to put you on this really boring set for, you know, one or two or three days so that you can learn the system. It's like sort of really simple imaging, you know, really simple widgets on white kind of thing, because what we want you to do is to learn the capture process and our internal system. And then once you're up to speed and we see that you've got this down and we know it's going to be really boring and you're going to have this by lunch, but we want you to really get the muscle memory for this because when we put you over on, you know, let's say if it's a more fashion oriented studio and we brought somebody in because they do women's swimwear really well, or they do, we know they do dresses really well, or they, they do men's higher price point things really well. When we put that creative contributor, whether it be a photographer or a stylist or other roles, we want them to have the muscle memory down for the system so that they concentrate on doing their best work, right? The goal is always to get that creative contributor who has mad skills exactly where we need them to be. Now, with the KPIs, of course, we're tracking KPIs and a lot of other information and and even down to which teams were together so that we know, oh, this team works really well. This one wasn't as good as we had hoped. But what we can do is come back to these creative contributors on a regular basis with the KPIs and say, hey, actually, you know what? We thought that we were going to see the best results, you know, putting you on this type of set, but it turns out you excelled over here on this type of set, actually with these two or three other contributors. What do you think about that? And so it becomes this opportunity for feedback between leadership and the contributors to make sure that they are in a place where they feel fulfilled, right? But they're also doing the work that the company needs them to do. There's a couple of things in this clip that I thought that we could kind of chat about. The first thing that stood out to me on this clip from Tony Baker at Stitch Fix is talking about a strategic way to onboard a new creative team member by putting them on a set that is relatively straightforward because you need them really to learn the system. So there's that part of it. And the second part of it is around using data and KPIs to look for those strong fits. And maybe you have an individual who doesn't know, do they want to be on an on-model set? Do they want to work independently on like a tabletop set? Do they work with stylists? Do they work on their own? And using those kind of KPIs to find the right balance between where the individual, where to start them out, and then also like where they may have the most impact, but also be happiest. So what do you think, James? What are some of your thoughts on this? It was really interesting to hear Tony open with that notion of uh, weaponizing KPIs. But I think far too often teams particularly creative teams, are kind of very nervous about data that's being collected and about measures that are being asked of them. There are so many variables in a photo studio and every day is different. And I remember vividly just trying to get some sense of what our capacity was from our team across different parts of our assortment and actually having a photographer in tears because the moment you started to talk about capacity and numbers, no matter how much I tried to kind of describe that this was really a benchmark and just something to start us off for our planning and then a baseline for measuring there was this sense that they were going to be held to it and they knew just how often things would go wrong and their numbers would plummet because of issues that are outside of their control. So I I was really, really pleased to hear Tony. I really support the idea that you use those numbers and those KPIs to actually support optimal performance and identify where you're doing well. And that level of data capture 
to understand a blending of a team. So this particular set worked well because of the photographer stylist model mix. And actually you change one of those variables and maybe things don't go quite so well. That level of data capture and visibility of what's going on on the set isn't something uh, that, that everyone's found very easy to get hold of. But to be able to utilize it in that way, I think is very powerful. The context of that part of the conversation was around that idea of our team's fears of data sometimes is a common one in a photo studio. I think we've all experienced it. Certainly, I've experienced it firsthand in several of the studios that I've worked at, which is, you put it perfectly, James, there is a fear that any slip up, any day that you have an off day is going to be like a check mark in the poor performance column. And no doubt in my mind, there's some studio out there with a misguided manager where that might be true. But I think it really is the trend in the industry to be you know, we need to know where we're at in relationship to our goals. And that's exactly what KPIs are. We need to have that information. But I think using it to match performance to where people can be the most effective is better for everybody. But it's also there's a communication aspect to it, which is that we're not going to collect this information. I'm not looking at it every minute of every day. And the first time you don't shoot seven products in an hour, I'm going to come out and have a chat with you about it. It's not that. It's let's figure out where we need to be to make sure that we're meeting our business needs and let's find where the puzzle pieces fit most perfectly. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's interesting, as you said, that no one you'd speak to would ever consider using those numbers that way. And yet my experience seems to kind of resonate with quite a few people that have had this conversation <laughs> with their creative people. So an interesting kind of dilemma there. But undoubtedly, the value of these numbers, the KPIs, the performance in both being able to recognize and reward good performance rather than using it as a stick to beat uh, your teams with is really important. But as you said, when you're producing very high volume and you're delivering to a business need, you have to be able to have some sense of capacity and what the studio is capable of. And that's the purpose of those numbers or certainly the numbers I was looking to collect. Well said, James. I think with that, let's move on to our next clip. So this clip comes to us from a past episode with Scott Wilson of Patagonia. So let's jump in and take a listen. For me, the measure of success of a studio is that I have nothing to report when people ask me what's going on in the studio. Because you ideally you want to build a process and get your projects going on those rails. You know, they just stick to the process and your job is making sure that it just stays on the rails. You look for those, you know, the little rocks and pennies on a trail to see if you're going to derail it. You take care of that before it happens. And in doing that, you don't have the flare-ups, you don't have the fires, you don't have the chaos that I think a lot of creative leaders, creative leaders meaning people who don't necessarily know a lot about the ins and outs of production, you know, VPs of creative or creative directors or whatever, I think they tend to see production and progress as lots of fires. That's creativity, right? It's just things are flaming out. Everyone's running around and that's the creative process. And that doesn't work for studios. Studios have to be the, there's no ripple. There's no wave. I really love this analogy from Scott around the idea of production in an e-com studio, especially like for a product studio being a set of rails. And it's all about anticipating blockages. And that if I have no news to report, then things are working well. And contrasting that with what creative production historically has looked like, which is, a producer and several assistants running around putting out minor fires and rescuing cats out of trees 
while photographers and stylists are doing whatever they can to keep things moving. And it can look a lot like chaos. What's your take on this sort of idea of no ripples in the production studio? It's a really interesting uh, perspective, uh, particularly given my my history and kind of desire to join uh, Creative Force. There's no question the kind of sort of traditional e-commerce studio was very much held together with sticky plasters and spreadsheets and that level of kind of chaos and last minute panic because I've got a full team on set and five products to shoot today isn't a sustainable way to run a studio and deliver consistently. So that's absolutely correct in terms of the fact that you want a really robust and repeatable process that allows the creative teams to focus on delivering brilliant quality and not running around. And I think the idea that creativity is actually about problem solving makes a lot of sense but it shouldn't be about solving problems in your production. It should be actually looking to solve creative problems. How am I going to best to kind of communicate to the customer the functional benefits of this product, but also inspire them to want to purchase it? Mm. There's a lot to be said for creativity in a kind of robust and structured framework. You said that so well that I melted in my chair for a moment because I was just thinking as you were saying that, that I think we tend to mistake sometimes where the creativity is in this process. And you're absolutely right. A lot of people, I think, maybe mistake the creativity and the problem solving that leads to this sort of creativity around solving problems in their production. The same way that I had not ever heard somebody describe it specifically this way until Scott Wilson said it, you've done the same thing again, which is to say that don't be solving problems in your production. The creativity is solving the problem on set in front of you. And the more that you can focus on that, you're going to be a better photographer, a better stylist, a better producer. You can focus actually more on increasing the quality of the end product instead of learning on the fly how to have a production that runs more smoothly. Absolutely. There is something for me around that sort of recognition that we're all problem solvers. One of the things I find a lot when we're talking about implementing the system is that people are actually kind of very wedded to the rather ingenious solutions they've come up with in their current world and the way they're tying together some IT software and a spreadsheet and a bit of spit and polish. And they found a way of working. And because it's a problem that they've solved locally, there's a real sense of kind of attachment to that, which actually should be applauded. You know, people in studios are incredibly resourceful and adaptable people and they've had to be given the ever ever growing demands that have been placed on them and the very limited tools they've had to work with so i I think it's super important i was thinking about it with the previous clip as well you know people don't kind of uh, set out to be a photographer or stylist or a retoucher to kind of solve the kind of production problems that we put in front of them they set out to be creative and we must ensure that when we're delivering such a heavy production line to deliver the voracious appetite that our customers' websites and social media platforms have. Ensure you're delivering that high volume, but still in creating the space for the creativity. That's what is so important and is what our customers see as the value. It's not just about a numbers game. It's about delivering quality at scale. Moving on to the next clip, we have a brief clip from my old friend Terrence Mahone. From his episode, Terrence Mahone with Farfetch, we talked a lot about continuous improvement, which I know, James, is a topic that is near and dear to your heart. So uh, let's take a listen to this clip with Terrence Mahone. First off, things have to change in studios. You know, it's like we live in a revolutionary technology time with, with digital photography and things are fast moving. So how do you stay ahead of that? And how do you empower people to stay ahead of that? I think that's part of it. I think that knowing that 
true, effective, measurable change that improves performance comes directly from the people doing the job, and it's proven. I think that is probably the strongest selling point. The second strongest selling point is that empowering your people to be responsible for those changes allows your people to grow in ways that you may not have expected your creative team to be able to grow. So I I think it's twofold. It's, and I hate to say it's process first, but it's probably process first and people second, but, um, but it's both process and people in that you're going to improve your process. You're going to hear things. You may not want to hear them, but if you train and you allow that language to be impersonal language of describing processes and roadblocks and desired changes, it's much more palatable. And the team is going to, they're not going to feel like they're complaining. They're going to feel like they're empowered to change their process. A great segue from the last segment where we're talking now in this clip with Terrence about the virtue of continuous improvement where these ideas come from the bottom up. I hate that analogy bottom up because the teams that are working on set in a studio are arguably the most important people, not just on set, but the entire team doing all of that work are arguably the most important people. But the idea is that the continuous improvement ideas are not coming from management. They're coming from the teams who are doing the work, who are experiencing the setbacks and the barriers day after day. And the benefit of that is twofold. You get good ideas that actually have a tangible impact on production, but you also are starting to grow your team members in ways that they didn't expect. And maybe you didn't expect into areas where they didn't maybe see their career growing that can add a lot of value to them as they progress in their careers and maybe look to pivot into other parts of creative production or other parts of management. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that this is a subject that I had my eyes opened up about quite a lot. We've talked before about my love hate, relationship with lean and the consultants that were delivering that in my studio and actually it was this philosophy of the fact that the teams actually own the process and that they're the experts in terms of what's going on day to day was a really big kind of influence in changing my opinion i love the idea that you recognize the expertise of your teams that they're in the process day to day there's this kind of really interesting observation about process managers think they know what's going on in their processes they have to have a decent idea but it's nearly always quite a high-level perspective of what's happening, and it doesn't have the day-to-day challenges that the teams know about. And if you're going to deliver continuous improvement and really focus on only doing value-add tasks, you have to get right down in the dirt and understand all of those small things, the incremental benefits that drive that change to kind of really continue to move forward. So I'm very, very, very much in agreement on that area. And I also agree with the fact that it is process-first. One of the things that is absolutely clear is that if you're going to try and drive improvement, you actually need to know where you are right now. You have to have a consistent and repeatable process to be able to kind of do any kind of improvement activity. And so if you get, and it isn't always easy, but if you can get people to kind of adopt a process, not the best process, but I used to talk about it as being our process. It's what we do right now. You can get some repeatability in what you're doing. And then that creates a framework for someone to then identify the team to say, actually, this is getting in the way. And I think doing this in a different way is going to drive improvement. And then you can do a Kaizen event. You can do a very kind of rapid test of that, plan out how you're going to do it and identify very quickly against the benchmark, whether it's working or not. And if it's working, let's go do some more of it. And if it's not, let's go back to the drawing board and deliver something that will drive that improvement. And that is very empowering for the teams. And once you get teams feeling that 
process as something they own rather than it's being done to them. You know, ownership is enormously powerful in terms of driving engagement. And as you said, giving people the opportunity to develop in areas that they maybe wouldn't necessarily have thought they were going to move into. You keep giving me pull quote after pull quote, James. I'm going to have a hard time deciding what I want to use to intro the episode. The idea of the process being owned by the team as opposed to being done to them. (laughs) Well said. And, you know, just because I think it's an amusing kind of story and I think we can all relate to it. I think we've all probably had that moment where, you know, maybe you have a new senior leader who's visiting your studio and they're touring the studio and they're learning about what everybody does in the studio. And you take them as like a mid-level studio manager. You take them on set and you show them and they start asking questions and they're like, well, why are you doing this? And I said, oh, well, I figured out a while ago that if I don't lick my fingers and hold this wire and then stretch my foot over here to push this button, that it doesn't exactly work the way it's supposed to. That's a really embarrassing way to learn about what your teams are doing in response to the things that are going on on set. And the point that I'm trying to make here is that we have to build these structures in place to constantly be soliciting this information from our teams because in the studio, they're problem solvers. They're going to do what they need to do to get the shot, to get the asset, to get the job done. We have to build these structures in place as a management team, This build this culture of saying, like, we need to know the ideas. If something doesn't feel right to you, bubble it up. Don't wait for the new VP of creative to come in the studio and then explain that you have to lick your fingers and touch the live wire and stretch your foot over to hit the button to make everything work the way it's supposed to. Completely. It's one of the things that I learned quite clearly is that, you know, sometimes you don't hear about these things because people think you don't want to know. If you're not perceived as being open to hearing the challenges the team are facing, then those kind of things will go under the radar and the guys will just get stuff done. So I think that that level of empowerment to say that you own the process and we've given you a framework to kind of change that in a structured way, it then also encourages that surfacing of things that maybe the team can't solve for themselves. So there's certain things that are going to be local and that you can come up with ideas and address, but there may be upstream issues that are an input to your process that the team can't control. And that's where the responsibility lies on their managers and leaders to take the problems that aren't in their gift and address them as well, because continuous improvement has to be a kind of organizational commitment, not just the production on the set. I think you're totally right. You know, you absolutely have to create a culture where the team are encouraged to surface problems, come with ideas, and you cultivate that by acting on them, giving the team the power to make the change, own the process, and demonstrate the value. That's one of the great things about continuous improvement is you start with a benchmark, you have an idea, you test it, you deliver results, and then you've got some brilliant objective measures of what you achieved. And that's great for people's development. It's great for their PDPs. There's, you know, uh, opportunity to reward. It's a very virtuous circle. Moving on to our last clip. This comes to us from our episode with Todd Schweikert of Rue Guilt Group. So let's take a listen to the clip and go from there. It was one of the bigger challenges for any studio with high volume productions. For us, it really came down to measuring a lot of different aspects of our business. When we started looking at this, one of the challenges we had was if we knew how much needed to be produced in a single day and we knew how much a photographer and a stylist could work through, on the day that the product would arrive, the styling may be different, different elements would change, and that day would either become lengthened or shortened. Hmm. And lengthening the day definitely created issues. We would go into overtime. People would plan their day around, obviously, work. And so they would run into some personal challenges. And the only way to really compensate for that would be to either stay later or start the next day earlier or, or just you know start to 
try to get creative on how to still work through all that. On the flip side, we would have that same issue, but maybe the day would wrap a half a day early. Really, that would come down to you're either paying for freelance that isn't being fully utilized, or from a project perspective, if we can't anticipate that a team will have a half a day available, we may not put a project in place, knowing that that team was already associated with a photo set. If we knew that that photo set was only going to be a half a day, we could have implemented a project for that team to work on. But because they worked through the product much quicker than anticipated, it would leave the project a bit up in the air. And as a studio, that affects our innovation and affects our ability to have some personal projects accomplished as well. So for us, measuring, and I know that's always the, where do you start to measure? How do you measure? That's the big topic. Right. We start at high level. We start measuring at accessories, handbags, footwear. And then from there, you start to break it into categories. Well, what type of footwear? What brands of footwear? We started to really get down to a more granular level And for business reporting, we report at a higher level. We report at that accessories, footwear, handbag. But for our, what I would call associate satisfaction, that granular reporting became really important for that team. So we do measure the UPH all the way, you know, down to at a brand level across many of our categories. I think when I started, we had 12 categories in general that we measured. And now we're at 3,600 because we are at brands, which seems a bit intense, but it's given us the ability to truly measure a set to say this set should take a team eight hours. And it's a very complex combination of brands and product mix. And it gives us that ability to know how that set should be scheduled. What's beneficial is things happen. People call out. Product shows up later than you expect. So When we find ourselves in a situation where when a set was planned to a certain capacity, and if it looks like we're falling off track, we do keep tabs on every hour, the team that's on that set, we can see where they're at. So we can see at a percentage level, how far are they in their day. And if we start to see that the team is falling off track, we already know how many styles by which category we need to move off to another set so that we can start to load balance. Hmm. That started to change how we thought about our day. That started to change how we worked through our product. You know, for Rue Gilt Group, we are a flash model business. And so our events change, our timelines are tight, and we want to make sure we work through product as fast as possible. So it's really important for us to fill in every gap that we have whenever we're met with some form of possible delay or other challenge. So in this clip, we hear from Todd about the difference that metrics has made in their ability to basically tactically run their studio from day to day. And this kind of harkens back to one of the clips that we heard earlier and kind of talked about around data in a studio. And this is one of the areas where it can really become an important part of selling the studio as a strategic part of the business is having insight into this data and giving the confidence to your C-suite team that you are running the studio based on this information. I think it's really interesting that he mentioned something like 3,600 categories. I don't know if he was joking around about that, but it wouldn't be that surprising to me if that was a true number. Because if you're good at collecting data, you certainly can get down to the point where you know that 
Louis Vuitton bags maybe take slightly longer than coach bags to style or whatever that data is, you can use that to plan, to run your studio, to load balance, and to help support your teams. But again, it's not about telling the teams what they should be doing. You're still opening up the door for the unexpected to happen because it will. But you can say, this set's maybe a little bit heavy. We need to slide things around a little bit. It's absolutely essential what he's describing. So that level of granular detail around how long a particular category or a specific product or brand takes to shoot in the studio is crucial to the planning, as you said, to the consistent output from the studio, but also the team satisfaction. If you're going to load a set for the day, you don't want to be loading up something that's going to automatically take an hour and a half longer than the guys are planning to work that day. And carryovers are a constant problem whenever we go and talk to studios Part of their process is always the first thing in the morning, looking at the carryover and how we're going to manage it. So it's absolutely the right way to go. It's incredibly difficult to get that level of detail consistently. When we were running our lean project in the studio at John Lewis, we were having to do manual data collection, but wasn't very lean. Right. <laughs> it kind of very much not value add filling in a, a spreadsheet. But of course, as part of that, setting the standard and then identifying how long something should take and then monitoring how things are going, you give the team that sense of support. So if you know that I'm falling behind, the idea of a downtime log, you know, these kind of variables that come into the studio that are going to throw you off track, they happen. We all know they happen. And so you can see that the set's falling behind. You can document what led to that. So that becomes a problem that you can try and address and avoid happening going forward. But you can also then let the team support each other. So rather than one set running late and other guys finishing earlier, the notion of being able to load balance and deliver consistently from the studio without burdening the team with massive overtime is a really positive environment for the teams to work in. And it's also really good for the business. The moment you know what your capacity is, you can start to plan really well for upcoming seasons. You understand capacity. You also understand what you can do when you've got a variable because you know what your production is looking like in the weeks and months ahead. So it really is the foundation of running a high volume studio uh, to, to actually know what good looks like and being able to deliver against it. But also Again, when you're running continuous improvement, you've got the visibility of how those improvement activities are driving that product per hour or products per day number up, right. which is great, as you said, to kind of demonstrate the value that's coming from the studio. And we're often not talking about insignificant differences between categories or brands even. At Farfetch, it was known, certainly anecdotally, and the data bore it out as well, that some brands would send us their collection of garments for the season and we just knew what we were getting was going to take four times longer to style you know like certain brands certain features i mean think about the difference between a t-shirt and an evening gown you know on paper those are one unit each but an evening gown is going to take exponentially longer to unpack prep style and shoot than a t-shirt will and of course you know driving that improvement and creating capacity gives you those opportunity for the personal growth projects as well which is also super important for the teams yeah that's been mentioned a couple of times in some of the clips here that i've not been shy to share on this podcast that i'm a big fan of and i think this is one of the things that we absolutely should be implementing for our teams you know they're working all day in a studio with all the equipment and resources let them play around a little bit and grow their skills it's going to benefit the business and it's going to make your team feel really great about working with you. Absolutely. James, thank you so much for sitting down and listening to these clips. We don't get as much face time together at Creative Force as we used to. We're getting pretty busy, but it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm so, so, so happy to finally 
have you on the podcast and I can't wait for our listeners to hear this episode. I think it's been fantastic. Well, thanks for having me, Daniel. I really enjoyed it. That's it for our holiday season clip show of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed getting a bit of new perspective on some past episodes. Or if you're a newer listener, maybe we piqued your interest in some other episodes you haven't listened to yet. Many thanks to James Lewis for being our guest. And thanks to you for listening. The show is produced by Creative Force, edited by Calvin Lands. Special thanks to Sean O'Meara. I'm your host, Daniel Jester. Until next time, my friends. (laughs) 